If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Hebrews chapter 3 as we continue our study there. I'll go ahead and read verses 12 through 14. Hopefully by the end of this series you will have memorized Hebrews 12 through uh, 3, not 12 through 14, that'd be difficult, but uh, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Here we go. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence, our original confidence, firm to the end. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So we have, including today, four messages left in this series regarding exhort one another. Today we're talking about how the married and the unmarried interact in the church and how we can, in those different groupings, exhort one another. And there is a lot that I believe the Bible has to say as we look at Jesus' example of how the married can exhort all of us and how the unmarried can exhort all of us and each of them each other. And next week we're going to be talking about friendship and then we're going to be talking about the old and the young and then we're going to talk about the kingdom and your life. That's how we'll end it out. We've just got four weeks left, and I, I just want to ask you this question because I'm going to be harping on it a lot on the last sermon in this series, is this. Has it changed anything for you? Is your life substantially different in any way as a result of hearing the Word of God in this text? I don't think that I have to be a great preacher in order for you to be moved and arrested by the seriousness of this text and the corresponding joy and privilege that comes with being commanded to exhort one another and being involved in the testimony of your brothers and sisters. Think of that, that you have the privilege by your actions and by your obedience to this command to be a part of what your brother or sister in Christ will say in praise to God when we are all gathered there, when we all get home. And they would praise God for your involvement in their lives and helping them make it home safely. But can you point to one thing just one thing that has changed in your life, even if it's just a change in perspective or thinking. Maybe you don't have it all figured out as to how it would look in the years to come, but you should at least have a desire to make this command to exhort one another every day central in your Christian life. Just think about this. It's providential that you are hearing this series. Think about that. You're all gathered here. We are here at this time. God says that uh, through Paul in Acts 17 that he allots the times and boundaries of everyone's living place. So you, you are living where you're living by God's providence and his ordination. And you are attending or a member of this church during this time. I came up to this place from Texas to preach during this time. And you may, may never for the rest of your life hear an intensified study on this very topic. God's work is involved in explaining these truths to you. 
And again, it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to be the best communicator of those truths. If it has in any way exposed the truth of God's word to you about how this should look in your lives, then it is your responsibility to make it so. And if you have no idea about how anything should or could change in your life, seek out someone that you see as being a little bit better in a certain area of the Christian life than you and ask for their help. Say, I, I want to be a better exhorter of my children. Identify someone in your life who you think or see like, I, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that mom. Or if you say, I want to be a better exhorter of my spouse, identify someone in your life who you see as they're, they're kind of doing the things that I would like to do. They're exhorting their spouse the way I would like to and ask for their help. Seek someone out. And in the next few weeks, this is just a very practical, down-to-earth way I think that you should do it. If you're married... Try to get a date with your wife and the whole purpose being let's figure out how we as a couple are going to exhort one another and take on this responsibility as members of this church to exhort one another every day. If you're not married, get together with some of your closest friends in the Lord and say, how can we for the next years or however long God gives us make this a priority in our lives? Not because I said so but because the author of Hebrews commands us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exhort one another every day. Young people, children, set aside some time to ask, to think, ponder how you, even in your young and energetic stage, can exhort us all. We need you. So this morning we spoke about, let me back up a little bit. So that's the one important question I ask you today is, has it changed anything? And what are you going to do about it to make sure that as a result of this study, it does change something in your life? The next question, and this is more kind of a gut check for you, is what's your motivation? Is it out of obligation or fear? We talked this morning about regeneration, and I gave each person kind of a, a spiritual assessment. How can we know from Scripture if we have experienced the new birth? And I kind of mustered some texts from 1 Peter and 1 John primarily that give us evidences of what the new birth looks like in our lives. And one of the key evidences of the new birth is this. You love the brothers. This is how we know that we have come to know him. You want to know that you're in Christ? You want to know that salvation is yours? This is how we know that we have come to know him, that we love the brothers. So what's your motivation in exhorting one another and trying to stir one another up to love and to good works to help each other endure? It has to be love. And if you don't have that love for your brother or sister in Christ, if you're just trying to figure it out out of obligation or a sense of whatever, then it's not going to work. And you'll find yourself being continually frustrated, hitting up against the ceiling and not being able to figure out how to do this. It has to be motivated out of love. If you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, Got to address that first. You might not even be in Christ. So this message is for you today, especially as I try to exalt Jesus as our example to the married and the unmarried, as I talk about his glory and how he sought to obey the Father and honor the Father and redeem a people for God. For you, if you sense no love in your heart for those who are in Christ towards the brothers, 
then this is for you. Maybe you would see Christ as glorious for the first time today and be saved. So this week the question is, how can the married exhort the unmarried? And how can the unmarried exhort the married? And how all of those different interrelations take place. First, I think it's important to ask the question, why even ask this question? Is there a problem? Is there an issue between married people and unmarried people? This week especially, and next week, the issue I hope to address is one that I call willing segregation in the church. Usually segregation is seen as a negative thing in our culture, right? So you have segregation based on ethnicity, social status, financial status, national origin, occupation, skin color, etc. These are all seen as bad and even offensive if you segregate based on those facets. But when it comes to age and marital status, we jolly well don't mind segregation at all. We are willing participants. In fact, we seek it. We all love it. Get those older people out of here. They're no fun and they're grouchy. Get those little kids out of here. Put them away in their own room so we don't have to hear them. They're too energetic. That's next week. This week, yeah, be excited. This week, I mean to dismantle more of what I've referred to multiple times as the life stage myth. This false thinking that is so pervasive in society. We think, we, we have the perception that we can really only be friends and have meaningful relationships with people who share the same life stage or situation as us. It's very natural to think that way. But it's not gospel thinking. So how does this false thinking manifest itself? Once people get married their friends group changes and they begin to put distance between them and their unmarried friends. Part of it is both um, natural, like when you have a spouse, hopefully they're now your best friend and the one you spend the most time with and so you don't have as much time or freedom to go and just hang out with the guys, right? And vice versa. If If you're a young lady and you're married, hopefully your husband is the one that you want to do all the enjoyable things of life together and you don't have as much time or freedom to just go spend a weekend with the girls. Not that that would be bad, but it's just priorities change, right? The hierarchy of values changes. You value time with your spouse, hopefully, uh, more than your friends group. All this is normal, but the false thinking The false teaching is the assumption that this is good. We call it a new season of life, right? Have you ever heard anyone say that as a justification for why they're not spending as much time with you or investing as much in the relationship with you? Well, I'm just at a different place now, in a different season. For the singles among us, it's more of a reflection of desire for ease than anything else. I remember being single, right? It wasn't too long ago. Seven years coming up soon. The only married friends I had during my single college years and before, other than family, were ministers. 
right? And that almost doesn't count because us ministers, us pastor people, we should be friends with everyone, right? There was one exception. And I want to honor them today just by mentioning their names, Holly and Isaac Barton. They were a married couple who lived near campus in campus housing, and they regularly had all of us overly energetic and emotional single people over to their apartment. We would study, we would stay there till one or two o'clock sometimes, and it wasn't as if it was easy for them. Yeah, their younger brother, Isaac's younger brother, was a student with us, so it was kind of a little bit natural for them to invite his friends over, but it was more than that. And it was difficult for them because they had small children. But they let us continually, I mean on a weekly basis, sometimes multiple times a week, let us all invade their homes and kind of have them as our friends. And here's the thing, they did the work. It would have been hard for me if if they hadn't initiated to seek out a married couple to be friends with. It's kind of awkward. Like, how do you even do that as a single person? Seek out a a married couple like, I'm going to be your friend. That's just awkward in our culture today, right? They did the work. They made themselves available and they adopted us. Many of us living, some of us, very far from home. After Beth and I were married, we made it our goal to try to be the exception. And we, one of the ways we did this is we hosted a home group in our first apartment together. It was a 700-square-foot apartment, one bedroom. And when the home group gathered, there was usually just a narrow space for you to sit down. So you came in, sat down, and didn't move the entire time, right? <laughs> you had to get up, go use the restroom 10 feet away, you know. That was it. And we had single people and married people over. We tried to kind of follow Holly and Isaac's example, But then we just got thrown into the minister category, right? And then those relationships built with people who are single and at a different life stage really doesn't count anymore because it's expected of you. Oh, you're supposed to be friends. Supposed to be nice to everyone and invest in everyone. So with all that said, and that's kind of the context and how I'm thinking about this, things I look and I see and I identify problems and I sense the way culture maybe is going and how things are expected to be or things that are accepted within the church. And I I just try to read scripture and I say, no, I'm not happy with that. And what does the Bible say? So let's go through it together. This is my question that I'm asking the author of Hebrews. Can you tell us, author of Hebrews, how the unmarried can exhort the married and all of us? And how can the married people exhort the unmarried? And here's my methodology. This is where I'm going. There are two passages of Scripture that I want to go to that speak of Christ as our example. If you go to Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, this is one we've already covered. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when uh, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And also Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we, we, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those two texts are the pillars of my thinking in this sermon and the ones to come. The heart of the idea here is that we can look at Jesus as our example, not just in the sense that he gave us a new law, that he tells us how to live, but that he actually lived the life he commanded us to live. He is our example. Bearing our sins, my example is he. As the hymn says, regardless of what you think your life is about, regardless of the life stage that you're in, regardless of how different you are from the world standards, from who Jesus was, he is your example of how to live a life that pleases God. How can this be? How can each of us, no matter age, gender, marital status, economic status, ethnicity, job, number of kids, level of health, how can we all look to Jesus and know exactly how we ought to live in our particular circumstances? Not in spite of them, but in those particular circumstances. Jesus never had eight kids or have cancer, or go through round after round after round of chemotherapy, but my dad did. And yet for him, even in the midst of that, Jesus was his example of how to do it well. Jesus never had a child born with failing kidneys, or the doctors tell him that his child may not live very long at all, but my friends Aaron and Christy do. Yet for them, Jesus is the example of how to live through that and honor God well in that trial. Jesus never lived into old age or have to deal with his body breaking down through the curse of sin day after day. But this is maybe the case for many of you. But Jesus is still the example for you of how to do that well and honor God. In all the other scenarios you could think of, Jesus was a 30, 33-year-old Jewish man in the first century, didn't marry, didn't have children, and yet he is the example for all of us, regardless of gender, status in society, job, whatever. He's your example. How can he be your example? More important than any other way that we could used to describe Jesus' life, the most important for us, especially on this topic, is this. That for him, his sole devotion was to do the will of his Father. That's how he says it in John 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If you look at his experience in the wilderness... When the enemy tempted him, what mattered most to Jesus wasn't his age or his gender or his life story. It's what the father expected of him. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. 
He doesn't say to Satan, oh, who do you think I am? I'm the son of God. He says, my father is more important than you. What my father commands is more important than what you're saying. So I'm not going to listen to you. And if you look at the garden where he's on the Mount of Olives and he's praying and he desperately doesn't want to drink this cup of the wrath of God poured out. And he says, yet not my will, but your will. You realize that the salvation of everyone hinges on that moment. That Jesus doesn't want, he's not excited about the prospect of drinking that undiluted wrath of God. And he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. This is how Jesus is for us, all of our example. If the will of God, the will of the Father is for you, your first and foremost desire and priority, then it explains everything of how you're to act and how you're to be in all the different millions of circumstances that come up into your life. This week, the big idea is that Jesus is the perfect example for both married people and unmarried people and any other type of person that you could be for how to live as a servant to your brothers and sisters. So I have five ways for each. Five ways that the married among us can exhort the unmarried or everyone else. And then five ways that the unmarried among us can exhort the married people and everyone else. So we'll go through those and we'll be done. The first way that married people can exhort us and the unmarried among us is by avoiding making your life all about your marriage. Life is not defined by your married state. There is more to your story and there is more important things going on in the world than your romance with your spouse. And I have to be very very careful here, but I do want to read for you a text from 1 Corinthians 7. First Corinthians 7, verse 29 through 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as those who had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Paul can't mean that you now disregard your wife or your spouse. Because of all the rest that he says about marriage in like 30 different places, at least. But what he means is, is that the most important things happening in the world aren't just the domestic family. It's not about romance and you having the life that you want to have with your spouse. It's about the kingdom of God and that the time has grown very short. And some people say of this text, well, Paul's just talking about uh, the situation back then because the destruction of the temple was coming up and there was persecution about to break out against the church. And I reject that because he's writing to the church at Corinth, not the church in Jerusalem. And he says, live as though you had no wife. And he can't mean, like I said, that you disregard your spouse. And I've got to be very careful here. I don't want you to leave with the wrong idea. 
But this means that your spouse cannot bear the weight of being the most important thing in your life. Your spouse makes a terrible God. Have any of y'all tried it? Uncomfortable chuckles. It doesn't work. They can't bear that weight. They can't provide for you the joy and the meaning and the sustaining grace that you need only from the Father. Your life is more, about, more than just about your marriage. The best thing you can do for your marriage and for everyone else is to love Jesus and to desire to do the will of the Father so much that you demonstrate that the very good gift of marriage is not the end-all, be-all Christ is. Jesus is your example. Even as he came to redeem his bride, he says, it's not about my will. It's about the will of my father. So that's the first way. Second way, exhort others by involving them in your life. And this is part of what I said when I was speaking about my friends in college. They initiated and kind of did the work to invite us young people in. But it's not just in being a service to young people. Sometimes us married people need help too. I was uh, looking at, this was before Beth and I had children, and uh, this was one of my friends on Facebook, and he posted something probably out of bitterness in his heart, and he said, I get frustrated any time any of my married friends with kids say that they're going on a date with their spouse. Your life is a date. You have no kids. Right? It's like you don't have to find a babysitter. You don't have to deal with troublesome uh, logistical situations that come up with having kids. And he was just frustrated saying, yeah, y'all always have dates. And I thought, okay, fine. But why don't you ask someone, one of these people that you maybe have bitterness in your heart towards, and ask them, invite them into your lives to bear some of your burdens. And we'll get to that. When we talk about unmarried people and the willingness we should have to bear one another's burdens. Self-sufficient families is a nice Western idea, but it's not a biblical one. Jesus is your example, married people, in that even though he was the son of God, all sufficient in power, he involved others in his life, both to accomplish his mission and to help him endure. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but when Jesus goes to the garden, the story I've already mentioned, he brings his disciples with him, and then he takes Peter, James, and John even further with him and only goes just a little bit past where he brought them with him. He's the Son of God. who's filled with the Spirit, yet he brings these closest friends with him along to bear some of his burdens. Even though you may feel your family has it all together, invite others into your life. So that's the second way. You can also, this is the third way, exhort the unmarried among us by giving them, us, a picture of Christ and the church. And I won't spend a ton of time here because hopefully you all know this idea, but I will read the text. Your marriage is about Jesus. First and foremost. And what you're given in marriage is a way to display the gospel in a way that nothing else can. It's not that it's the best way. Obviously, that would be scripture. But you're a a shadow, a uh, 
a similitude to the gospel and how you relate to your spouse and how you're showing what you believe to the world about God. And this comes from Ephesians 5. If you want to turn there, Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I've preached on this text, or at least mentioned it, in every wedding I've officiated. Because what it does is it connects for us this institution of marriage, this gift of marriage, it connects it to something eternal, something far greater. This mystery is profound. This mystery that we see in Genesis is profound of the wife being given to the husband and the husband to the wife. That's a profound mystery. And Paul says, and I am saying that this mystery refers to or points to Christ and the church. It's not just about you and your spouse having a good life together. You're meant to be a display of the gospel to everyone who knows anything about your relationship. So exhort us by being a good display of it. This, you can look to Jesus and how he treats the church husbands to know how you should treat your spouse. And we've, we've covered that significantly several weeks ago and how husbands can exhort their wives and how wives can exhort their husbands. But just, just think about the weight of that, that you've been given the opportunity to preach the gospel every day to those who know anything about your relationship with how you love your spouse. Fourth way the married among us can exhort the unmarried is, as I already mentioned, by adopting them. We have a very strong adoption and fostering culture here in this church, and I'm very grateful to the Lord for that. I'm not proud of it because I didn't have any part in it, uh, but I'm very grateful to the Lord for it. for it. It's an evidence of His grace, and it is also an evidence of His grace when married couples begin to take on young people as their adoption pro projects as well. Not going through the official process of adoption, but saying, hey, come over to our house. Hey, let me show you this. The International Mission Board put out a study a few years ago. It's a little bit dated. But 80% of the international students who come to the United States to attend our colleges are never even invited into an American home, much less a Christian home. 80%. They never even get an invitation. And I know we're not necessarily a college town. I mean, that's kind of Spokane with Gonzaga. And we, we have kind of extension campuses here. But there are a lot of derelict and lonely young people out there. And the statistics are unsettling. How many of them have maybe even grown up in the church and then abandoned the faith and maybe if they get married one day and have kids, they start worrying about their kids' eternal security. And then around 35, they start showing back up into church. Just look at the demographics of our church. 
adopt young adults. They need a family. And even if they have a family, they need multiple families. Be like Jesus. Even though he had no home, he had no real money to speak of, he had a posture of hospitality. The tax collectors and sinners were being drawn to him. But even more than that, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. One of the ways that we can understand the gospel and how Jesus comes to the world and what he comes to do is inviting us into his home. Your home is a mission field. And there are many lonely, derelict young people. The fifth way for the married in our midst to exhort all of us is showing us that it's not mainly, not primarily about your nuclear family, your, your, your spouse and your kids. So there are a lot of ways for untruths to persist in the church. There's heresy, all right, things that have been condemned by councils in the past as like, if you believe this, you're not a Christian. There's also false teaching, things that are taught that are untrue, not true from Scripture. There are also just bad ideas, and then there are bad attitudes, and then there are just pro- improper emphases, right? Like it's not, it's, it's not necessarily that it's wrong to believe certain things, but if you make some things the main thing, that's still a problem if they're not the main thing. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he explains the gospel. The gospel is of first importance. If you make a theology of stewardship, for example, the number one thing in your life, then you're essentially teaching false doctrine, even though you may not believe some proposition that's false. I say all that to say the family is extremely important. When we gather and pray on Wednesday nights, we pray for individual families grouped together. Because if you look at Genesis 3, the way that the enemy works in undoing the good order that God created is by attacking the family. And it is no different today. The family is extremely important even in God's method of redeeming the world. But the family is not the main thing. If you look at Mark 3, just, we'll just look at the words of Jesus to understand this. Mark 3, verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. The crowd was sitting around. So this is Mary, James, and his other brothers and sisters, and they're coming wanting to get him. And a crowd was standing around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's about the family of God. And this gets translated into your priorities and how you schedule things and how you treat people and and the priorities of how you spend money. If the family of God is more important than your nuclear family, that will translate into everything you do. Look also at Luke 12. Luke 12, uh, beginning in verse 49. Verse 49. 
I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three, and they will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And what he's saying here is not that he intentionally comes to bring disunity, but that the gospel cuts through lines and previously held allegiances. The family of God is most important. And it brings a level of uneasiness in my heart when I see someone valuing the family, the nuclear family, above the family of God. It's a type of idolatry. Be like Jesus in your family and demonstrating and portraying that the family of God is most important. Here's a simple analogy for how this looks. When we were going through premarital counseling, Beth and I, um, we were counseled to be wary of this idea that both of us would come into the marriage with allegiances to our families, right? Basically, in a new marriage, you have two cultures colliding. I'm from East Texas. She's from the city, right? Even though it's Fort Worth and it's still Texas, there's a big difference there. But it's more than that. There's thousands of different things that neither of us even recognized were things that we held to as part of our family culture. And the person counseling us, a pastor, he said that when you come together, you have to leave those behind and be committed to creating something new with your spouse. And what generally happens is the one family that's better or stronger or more organized just takes over the new family. This is analogous to how it works in the family of God. We can still treat our families, the ones we have, as more important than the culture and way of doing things within the kingdom. It's different. We do things differently in the kingdom. And all families, traditions, and ways of doing things are outstripped by the millennia of church history and values that are important to the family of God. Now to the unmarried among us. First way that you can exhort us. Exhort us by showing us that life is about more than your unmarried state. There are so many examples of people who are single and merely obsessed with the task of becoming married. And there is an entire industry built on trying to help single people become not single anymore. Billions and billions of dollars are spent every year because people who are unmarried or not in a meaningful relationship want to be in a meaningful relationship and it defines their life. And you can exhort us, young single people, or however old you are, by showing us that your singleness or your desire to be married doesn't define you. Our culture does not help us at all. Be like Jesus. He was single and solely devoted to the kingdom 
of God. Don't let your future marriage or your singleness be your idol. Be like Jesus and make the will of God and pleasing the Father. Make that the obvious and overt goal of your life. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 40. That's why we read Psalm 40 this morning in Hebrews 10:7, And he says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is why I talked about Jesus being our example. If he is for you, the one you look to, the glorious example of the life that pleases God, and his deepest desire was to do the will of the Father, then regardless of how much you want to be married how much you despise your singleness or how much you enjoy the freedoms of singleness. It doesn't matter. Your will is to do the will of him who sent you. No soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but his desire is to please the one who enlisted him. So that's the first way. Second way, exhort the married people among us by helping them bear their burdens. Paul says in Galatians 6 2, bear one another's burdens and so, or by so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. That in bearing one another's burdens, finding a way to get up under the load that another person is carrying and helping them carry it, that that fulfills the law of Christ. You have perhaps, a lot of freedom and energy that a lot of married people just don't have. And that's just an acknowledgement. It's not necessarily you know, a deep insight. You have an opportunity um, to use those freedoms in a way that is not self-serving. And I, I don't know if I would have been the person they would have asked, but... I kind of feel bad that I never did anything necessarily to serve that couple in college who was so nice to all of us single people. Maybe they have a ton of people and they didn't really even need anything, but I don't know if it once crossed my mind, how can I bless them? Us married people aren't usually prone to ask for help because we want to be sufficient. The American idea is that the nuclear family is sufficient. We got it all set up. We have our castle. We have everything organized. When the reality is there's a lot of fractures and breaking down of things, and we need help. Third way, you can exhort, this is to to the unmarried among us, you can exhort the married among us, and all of us really, by being an example of the freedom Uh, Being an example by using the freedom you have for the kingdom of God. So Paul says in that chapter where we went to, 1 Corinthians 7, that the married person is concerned about how to please their spouse. And that the single person has the freedom to be concerned about how to please the Lord. And that's not, he's not saying this is a prescription. He's not saying that no marriages can be solely focused on the Lord. It's just the reality of it. When you've been given to another person to care for them, and you have children especially, a lot of your time and resources is spent on taking care of them. And single people among us, if you don't have a spouse, you don't have children necessarily, you can be like Jesus and seek the kingdom first. Our culture, again, does not help in this area, but I want to read for you Matthew 6, 31 through 34. 
probably one of the most important passages for myself personally in my life and understanding what it means to please God. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Our culture, even Christian culture, tells you young people, you single people, regardless of your age, that what your life should be about is getting all of your ducks in a row. You're supposed to figure out where you're going to go to school, what your major's going to be, what you're going to learn, when you're going to get a job, how you're going to get it, who you're going to marry, how you're going to find who you're going to marry. And you've got to get that all figured out before you're 30. And if you don't, you're a failure, failure to launch type of thing. A disgrace to the American dream, perhaps. Living in your parents' basement, how dare you. But... In seeking, that's all of what the Gentiles seek. Your father knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom. And I don't know how exactly that would look like in all of your lives, but some way the anthem, the banner of your life is the kingdom. And it's up to you. It is, it is your responsibility as a believer to figure out what that looks like in your life for you. Jesus, as your example, can give you a ton of content of what that actually looks like. And maybe it's a lot of the things that I've already said in how to serve and how to bear one another's burdens. But the way it will look like particularly, particularly in your life will be a little bit different and the opportunities and the people you know. But make your life about the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And you can also, to those of you who are unmarried, you can also be a constant reminder and an exhorter to those of us who are married that it is our responsibility to portray Christ and his gospel through our marriage. Sometimes the communication from married people to unmarried people is nothing but doom and gloom. Right? Before... Beth and I were married. Most of the people who came to me and talked to me about marriage to just give unsolicited advice, it was all discouraging, depressing even. That's not portraying the gospel. So you single people, you can reject that advice. And you can use those moments to exhort us and to say, I don't think you're making Jesus the point of your relationship with your spouse if this is your advice to me. Challenge us in that way. The fourth way that unmarried people among us can exhort all of us. Be an example for purity and honor. The world looks to romance and love stories to fill our sails and to keep us moving through the tragedy of life. When those of you in a courtship or in a dating relationship decide that you will portray honor and dignity and purity standing against the massive current of temptation and the enemy and the culture, it is a massive inspiration to, the, to us that we would look beyond the physical and the natural. And maybe... 
Even the non-believers would see your example of purity and honor and say, surely there must be a God among them. This is true of my friend, Stephen. He's, a, he's actually an MMA coach. And he's a Christian and he evangelizes everybody. He'll like get on a plane and just already decided I'm going to tell this person about Jesus. And when they learn that he uh, lived a life of purity, they say, oh, you're a for real Christian. You're not just one of those, you know, regular Christians. You're a for real Christian. You take this seriously. You live in purity and you honor your girlfriend, fiance, in that way. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Young people love the first part of this verse. Let no one despise you for your youth. And we usually stop there, right? Don't despise young people. You can't judge me. But, Paul says, set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Young people have a unique position in the church to set an example for us for all of those things. So make it your goal, young people, that you will set for us an example. We are looking to you whether we know it or not. Lastly, For the unmarried among us, exhort us all by showing us that it's not about our hopes and dreams and plans and getting all of that figured out. I work in the financial industry and a lot of what we talk about in the financial field, and any of you who've had interaction with an advisor, you probably know that it's all talked about in that context of what you want out of your life and your plan to get what you want. And this happens even on a wedding day. People even speak of their Christian friends. So yeah, this is their day. We just want it to be all about them. Be like Jesus. And don't insist on being served. Don't insist on your life being about you. This is how Paul says it in Acts 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It is a bold and radical commitment that ultimately makes sense if you understand who God is and what he promises to those who seek him. But to count your life as not worth anything to yourself. And young people, you have a unique position and posture in the church. You've got all of your life in front of you. And many of us who are older or married, maybe we envy you for that freedom and energy. But you have, because of that, a position where you can show us what it means to value the course that God has given you and the gospel above all else. I don't count my life of any value or as precious to myself. That commitment shines so brightly, especially in a young single person. I'll read one last passage of scripture. This is Matthew 20, verses 20 through 27. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him 
with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked them for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared for my, by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the only one who ever lived who had the right to insist on being served and making his life all about himself. The only one who ever lived who had the right to do that. Yet he came not to be served, but to serve. My challenge really to all of us is that we would learn from Jesus' example, whether we're married or unmarried, that we would take what we have and serve the Lord. Serve your brothers and sisters out of joy because you're given that privilege to help us all endure. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the example of Jesus Christ. I pray that as I have tried to exalt him as our great example, as one who first and foremost desired to do your will, who did not come seeking his own, but sought to make himself nothing as a servant. I pray that if there is one in our midst who does not know you in a saving way, that you would inspire them to come find someone to talk to or to pray with. Maybe even during this next song, that you would so move in their hearts to bring them to yourself. And I pray for all of us who do know you in the power of your resurrection, that you would use the example of Jesus heard today to inspire us to use our married state or unmarried state or whatever we would call ourselves for your kingdom. I pray that we would take this with us into our week and make it so in our lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.